All right, welcome to the podcast. I am joined today uh, with my very illustrious guest, uh, Jason Brennan. Uh, Jason, welcome. Uh, maybe you could introduce yourself to my students. Yeah, good to good to talk to you again, Abe. Uh, you know, we were working together years ago before you left us. Um, and uh, I'm a big fan of your work. Uh, and I think like you're doing really interesting things and some of the most original stuff that's being done in business ethics. Like between you and your advisor, Joseph Heath, you guys might revise, revive the field and, and like really turn into something special and good. So thanks for all the stuff that you're doing. Um, and I'm really looking forward to seeing like your next book uh, on, you know, I, I forget the term that you use for it, but the, you've got this cool theory and I'm really looking forward to seeing it. Um, I, I work on, my name is Jay Brennan. I work at Georgetown University. Um, I mostly work on democratic theory about pathologies of voting behavior and what that might mean for theories of representation or theories of democracy. Um, but I also work on what you might call the moral foundations of market society. And I'm interested in kind of the conflict sometimes between what philosophers think of markets and what economists think and what we should do to sort of mediate that conflict. Uh, and so the things that we're talking about today, I think, are mostly on that very point. Um, I think that we have a lot of sort of prejudices about commodification and about markets in general. And uh, what the book Markets Without Limits was in part trying to do was show that uh, maybe these are not as sound criticisms of markets as we're inclined to think. Uh, that, that's excellent. And thank you for the very, very kind words. Um, it, my students will have to wonder whether I, in fact, paid you to say that. Uh, <laughs> and whether you would have grounds to, to criticize me if I did. Um, but so, Anything so, yeah, I can so, say for free, I can say for money. That's it, So yeah, so, so that's in some ways, um, that's what I take to be the overall, your overall thesis generally about these things, right? Is anything you can do for free, you can do for money. Like yeah. adding money to it doesn't change it, change the act at its root. It might change the consequences potentially, but in and of itself, money doesn't, change the moral nature of an activity. Is that right? Yeah. And in a way, it's too simple of a thesis. Um, it's it's a good summary, but it ends up being a bit more complicated um, because it's another way of putting it that's better is any way that you, anything you can do for free, there's going to be some way of doing it for money, um, some realistic, plausible way to like make a market or some sort of like financial or market-like exchange for that object or that service or that good. Uh, so there can be cases where you can do something for free and there are certain ways of doing it for money that are morally bad. But our point is that there's other ways of doing it for money that are morally um, permissible or sometimes even good uh, and wonderful. So yeah, it's like there's some way to arrange a market or arrange an exchange such that it's morally permissible to do anything for free that you can do for money. Okay, that's excellent. And that, that yeah, that sounds right and plausible. Um, so so as, I, as I was telling you, I had my students read... Um, both your, your and Peter's um, article from Ethics, which is a, taken from a chapter from your book, if, I, if I'm correct. It, it ended up becoming a chapter of the book, that's right. The, the, okay. That came first, and then the book came um, as a result of that, yeah. I see, okay, okay. Um, and I also had them read um, one of the things that you guys had in mind when writing this piece, which was Elizabeth Anderson's argument um, against commercial surrogacy, which was also part of her larger book about more generally about ethics and economics. Yes. Um, so, so I, I, I'm going to ask you some questions uh, and my students had some questions sort of clarifying some, some aspects of your argument and how it works. Um, but I'm going to actually maybe ask a, a, a surprising question, which is, so we often like to say that for philosophers, um, 
the way we compliment is by criticizing, right? Yeah. Like the, the way we, the way we praise people is by, by criticizing them and trying to show why their arguments are wrong. And that's considered like, again, a good thing to do. That's like, that's the collegial thing. That's what our profession is all about. Um, and so you, you've spent a lot of time criticizing this kind of Andersonian argument and not just Anderson's, but others, but maybe with specifically with Anderson. I'm wondering, do you think there's something that she gets right or that there's something important about the argument, even if you just, if, even if you fundamentally disagree with it? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, I think broadly speaking, I, you know, I, I have a paper with Chris Fryman that um, just came out about something very similar to this about what we express by in like, you know, things like that. And I think there's a lot to be said for the issue of the ethics of expression and the meaning of things. Um, and so I like her book and other books, even when I, I think I disagree on their application about it, because that's something that philosophers haven't really intent, attended to very much and is obviously important. I mean, we spend lots of time, thanks to social media, talking about this stuff now. But, you know, what does it when we do certain things, we don't simply perform an action. We often express something. We express certain propositions. Um, we think that people can be morally blameworthy even for believing things or having certain attitudes, even if they don't act on them. Uh, so, so I think it's good for us to pay attention to, in general, the kind of semiotics of our activity um, and to have like good theories of the semiotics of our activity. Uh, and, and I think this applies not like this kind of debate, really. It's not just about markets. It's not just about belief. Um, in a way, for me, the the early draft of this paper came from a, a paper about uh, political philosophy in general and thinking about um, the value of democracy, because a lot of the arguments for why we should have democracy end up being semiotic ones. Like, what does it express when we give everyone an equal vote? You know, it's a very common thing for people to say is, I recognize when everyone has an equal vote, it's not even like giving them an equal share of cake. It's like giving them equal crumbs because the share of power is so small, especially in English speaking first past the post countries that have like crummy voting systems like like we do in the US. Um, but nevertheless, it expresses an ideal of equality. And that's something that's important. And then not having that expresses some other attitudes that are deplorable. So I think I think like she's right to have drawn our attention to um, the social meaning of of actions of policies of behaviors and so on and thinking this is very morally significant. Yeah, no, I think that's right. Like, I, you know, I, I, I think I've, I've been pulled more and more in, in your and Peter's direction. But I, but I always, whenever I read Anderson, that specific article of Anderson, and Anderson in general, even when I disagree with her, I always feel like she's right about something. Even if I think she's also, even if I ultimately disagree with it, she's often giving voice to a real concern, to like a yeah. live issue. Yeah, I agree. Anderson is an excellent philosopher. Um, she deserves the reputation that she has. You know, there are. There are people I, I you know, there people like Jerry Cohen, I disagree with him on almost everything, but I think he's really great. And then there are other people that I think are just utter garbage, but I tend not to really write about those people. You know, I just, I just sort of ignore them. So yeah, I tend to, I tend to write about the people that I like. Right. Now that makes perfect sense. Um, so, okay. So, so now that you've said some nice things, uh, <laughs> what do you, what, so, uh, the students have read it, but maybe just to give a recap, do you have a, a sort of clips notes version of you're in Peter's argument, how you would go about explaining in an elevator what your beef is with, with Anderson and other people who make this sort of argument. Yeah. Um, this is a completely obscure reference that no one will get. They wouldn't even get this in the nineties when it was not as obscure, but you know, there's, there's this, uh, industrial metal band called machines of loving grace. And on their second album, they have this song called cheap. And I remember the chorus of the song was like, 
it's what you say by what you buy into. And like he goes on to some other stuff from that. And it was all about the semiotics of, of what we buy. And that's like my first exposure to this stuff. So later on, you know, many years later, I'm reading Michael Sandel and Anderson and others. And they say, when we buy and sell things on the market, we're not simply exchanging goods and causing benefits and harms. We're expressing something. To put a price on something is to express an attitude. To make a purchase is to express an attitude. To give away one thing for the sake of something else is to express an attitude. We're saying something by buying things. And what we say might not be all, all that nice. Maybe we're saying something bad. Uh, so people like Anderson and Sandel, this is maybe more fair to Sandel than Anderson. She's a bit more sophisticated than this. Um, say things like, when you're putting a price on something, you're basically saying that it's fungible with money. And that's a problem because when we think about the value of money, it's just an instrument for satisfying our desires. It has no value in and of itself. It's simply of instrumental value. And we think that a lot of things that we're buying and selling um, are, they have like maybe some kind of sacred status or they have a kind of value that is not properly considered equivalent to money. You know, like your dog, if you purchase your dog, even though, you know, I pay, I have a dog, I pay $3,200 for it, but I don't think of little Zoe dog as being like the equivalent of 3,200 packs of, uh, of, you know, spearmint gum or 3,200 Sprite zeros. Like she has a value that's not really captured uh, an equivalent to that monetary value. So that's, that's kind of what they're getting at. And then they worry if because of that, that means that buying and selling certain things is wrong. When you buy and sell something, you say something you shouldn't say, you express an attitude you shouldn't have, and that makes it wrong to buy and sell. So that's that's kind of a quick summary of their way of thinking. Anderson has um has an interesting spin on this having to do with like creating spheres of value and so on, but that might be getting a too abstract uh, for this short discussion. So then Peter and I, we're, we're wondering about this, and we when we write our book on uh, commodification, we say... We've come up with like seven basic categories of like why people might think buying and selling something could be wrong. Um, we're actually going to be writing a, a version two of the book or um, what do they call it? Like a second edition of the book. And we came up with an eighth category that we missed and other people missed. But for the life of me, as I'm telling you this, I can't remember what it was. So I'm sorry about that. But there is a there is a number eight that we missed. We we're like, oh, how do we miss this? Um, so there's like we, there's like eight or so reasons why people might think certain kinds of markets are bad. And we we know that like you know for example if i buy and sell you as a slave i i express disrespect for you but i do so in part because i'm violating your rights and harming you but what's most common in the literature are what we call uh pure semiotic objections where people think that even apart from the fact that you know exploiting you expresses disrespect harming you expresses disrespect but even if we had a market where there was no exploitation, no harm, no misallocation of resources, and none of the other things which independently would make the market bad. If we had none of those things, the market would still be immoral because it just something about the meaning of money expresses the wrong attitude. Something about the meaning of money um, makes buying and selling things wrong. So our basic take is to say, well, if that's true, because it's not grounded, the meaning of money is not grounded here um, or the meaning of the sale is not grounded in any independent fact that has some sort of moral valence, like like my harming you is bad in and of itself. It's, it just has to be some sort of social meaning. So we do a couple things. One is we note that the social meaning of money that Anderson, Sandel, and others are relying on is a contingent Western phenomenon about how people happen to think right now. Uh, it turns out that contemporary Westerners think that money is profane, utilitarian. It has... Uh, 
Uh, it only is about satisfying your desires. It's hedonistic. But imputing that kind of meaning to money is not universal. Lots of people around the world don't impute that meaning to money. They don't think of it as profane and so on. And even Westerners haven't always thought that way. So Vivian Azelazar and a number of other uh, sociologists and anthropologists can show you that in the past, things that we would now think of as monetary exchanges that are profane used to have a more sacred status, or they were not seen as being in conflict with the ideas of the sacred or the noble. Uh, so we say, okay, it looks like it's socially variable. It looks like it's simply a social construct when there isn't an independent moral argument. If it's, And then we say we should just submit that to cost-benefit analysis. Um, so, I mean, a really simple way of putting it would be uh, uh, take the question of like shaking hands versus bowing, right? Like should when you say it's important that you express respect for other people, but a priori, uh, it doesn't really matter how you do it. You have lots and lots of options. So one thing a culture could do is shake hands. Another thing a culture could do is bow to each other. But you might learn later down the road that actually these practices are not equivalent. So it turns out bowing does not spread COVID and shaking hands spreads all sorts of diseases. And when you learn that, you might decide, well, even though in our culture, the way that we express respect is by shaking hands and not by bowing, when we learn that the shaking hands norm is socially destructive and killing people, we should feel morally, I think, obligated to change that norm if we can and morally liberated to violate in certain respects. That's not maybe the best example because, you know, you shaking hands with one person is generally not that dangerous. But in some cases, the the meaning that we impute to things ends up being quite deadly. So another example would be we talk about the foray tribe of uh, Papua New Guinea who had the practice of eating the brains of their dead as a way of expressing respect. A priori, that's totally legitimate. In fact, a priori, that sounds better to me than burying people um, when they say like, well, we're eating people because then our, our loved ones will live on through us. I'm like, that's, that's beautiful. That's way better than throwing them in the dirt. But it turns out that this kills, kills them. It causes uh, the spread of a prion based disease that like, I think it's called Kuru that literally causes everyone to die. And when you learn that you think we should stop having this kind of semiotic practice, we should stop abiding by this code of meaning. So the rituals that we use can be evaluated by cost-benefit analysis. And then we basically say a lot of these sort of semiotic rituals about money are actually killing people, like thinking that it's wrong to buy and sell organs, even if it doesn't exploit anybody, even if it doesn't harm anybody, just because of something about the meaning of money. Well, that kills people. Uh, and you know, thinking that it's wrong to buy and sell um, surrogacy services, well, that deprives lots of people the opportunity to have a baby. Like I have, I have two friends who paid for a surrogate. Uh, and, you know, Anderson has to say that they're evil exploiters of women. And I'm like, I, I don't think that's what's going on there. So that's that's the gist of it, I think. So good. So so that, that's excellent. So so uh, I mean, just to state it in a different way. Um, so someone like Anderson and, or Sandel or others. And, and again, I also just think this is a common notion. Just yeah. sort of think that, look, if, if you commodify something, you're doing something sort of you're degrading it in some way. You're corrupting it. Right. That should be that blood should be something that we see as something that's vital to human existence, not a mere commodity. And by buying and selling it, you're doing something just kind of base and gross. Right. Um, like I think a lot of times people have these gut reactions and, and you're in Peter's response is sort of twofold. One is to say, look, just empirically, it's not obvious that buying stuff actually just turns it into mere commodities. Right. The fact, so you, yeah, the fact that I bought my dog doesn't mean I just look at my dog as a commodity. Yeah. And then you want to say, but insofar as it does express this wrong thing, that's actually just, there might just be reasons to um, change the way we feel about it. Because if we change the way we feel about it, it can have all of these good consequences. 
Yeah. I mean, uh, to kind of make it, what they're effectively saying is like when you buy and sell certain things, you might not realize it, but you're giving everyone else the finger or you're giving the finger to something sacred. And we say, yeah, maybe you are because the meaning of things is a social construct. And it, it, so it is actually true that you're giving people the finger. But what if it turned out that giving people the finger actually saved everyone's life? What if it turned out that like cured COVID? Well, then we'd be like, oh, well, now you're obligated to give people the, the finger. So it's like, it's it's kind of like the the social meaning. Like, what do we say about that? It's It depends on like what the actual value of that social meaning is. Um, so there is a language of expression, uh, but the ethics of that language depends upon the effects of that language. It's not just written into the fabric of the universe. So two sort of, not really challenges, but just sort of responses that I'd, that I'd be curious to hear. And these both came out in my discussion with, with David. Um, so one is this idea of saying like, look, when, um, you know, when we're confronted with a, a sort of this, a social construction of money meaning one thing, and this is preventing us from getting all of these great gains, right? So we see buying organs as offensive, and that prevents us from having organ markets, even though organ markets might be good for us to, in the long run, something like that. Yeah. And so your response is like, okay, well, then we should just change the norm because the norm is having all these bad consequences. Yeah. Um, but of course, the problem with you know, a response to that is norms are slow moving, right? They don't change easily. And, you know, we're, we're both familiar with, with, for instance, the work of Cristina Bicchieri and stuff like where, where trying to figure out how to create new norms or change old norms is not straightforward at all. And it's not clear that we have a great grasp of it. And so given that, would there be some reason to say that that old norm as flawed as it is and as bad consequences as it's created, given the fact that it's going to be difficult to change, does it have any value or is there might be, or there might be a reason to stick with it Yeah, just because it's hard to change. Does that make sense? No, it's good. Um, I can tell you that the history of this paper too, when we originally submitted it, we didn't have a response to that particular kind of objection in the paper. Mm -hmm. um, and then when we submitted the revised version um, that got accepted, I think part of the reason it got accepted was because of the response we put into that very objection from one of the referees. Um, and what we ended up saying was, well, think of it like here, here's an analogy where people don't find that persuasive as an objection. We say, so look, given say Western, uh, like 1960s Western conceptions of gender, then behaving according to certain norms expresses certain things about respect for society and respect for elders and respect for others. Um, but people like fe early feminist author, well, not even early, like, I guess it's like second wave feminist authors are saying like these norms and expressive norms, including them are oppressive and stifling. They control people. They disrespect their autonomy. They push them into certain kinds of boxes. They're socially destructive. They're unequal, et cetera, et cetera. And then they say, so we should change the norms if we can but further they go, you're not sort of beholden to like live with inside of the cage of these norms. Once you recognize how destructive and bad they are, you're allowed to basically flaunt them or ignore them because of how bad the norms are. You know, so we say basically say like someone who's inclined to make that kind of argument about, um, uh, you know, keep sticking to the norms of, uh, of the meaning of money at the expense of like killing people because they can't get kidneys. Uh, they wouldn't say many people wouldn't say the same thing about like, say, sticking to like uh, old fashioned ideas of gender and, and 
gender roles or something and yeah, they would instead say no yeah or homosexuality yeah good another example instead you're like allowed to violate those norms um even if society doesn't change because like they're bad and and they're and so on and so i think that referees were like oh yeah i don't want to say that about the feminist case so i better not say that about this and it doesn't look like they're disanalogous it looks like they're basically the same um i mean i know obviously there's differences in them but the, they're not maybe morally relevant differences so yeah, so if we were talking about these are norms that are killing people, stifling people, hurting them, or just even causing a big loss of potential welfare, that's a pretty good reason not to go along with it. So again, we're like, put it all to cost benefit analysis. You know, like if I if I find out that it turns out that like shaking, you know, imagine we find out that like the norm that uh, giving people the middle finger um, as a way of expressing disrespect, if we got rid of that norm over the next million years, we'd have one extra dollar's worth of utility spread around the world, you know, one extra dollar's worth of happiness. I wouldn't say that's a reason to violate that norm because like the, it's such a minor amount of value and the, the cost of trying to police it or change it or flaunting it are much higher. The, the transaction costs of changing it are much higher. But if you're talking about something where, violating the norm actually does produce lots and lots of value. Like you're saving lives or allowing people to lead authentic lives to themselves and not oppressing their sexuality or whatever it might be. Then that's a good reason on its own to violate it. And further part of how you get people to change is by violating the norm and getting them to be accustomed to the violation and seeing that maybe it's not so bad. Right. Okay. Yeah. That, so that, that is interesting and compelling, but it, but it is, I think this does draw out something that I hadn't fully appreciated, which is, that would still say there is some regard for the potentially expressive harm, right? Like that is, it, it, that can outweigh, right? Like, like the middle finger thing only producing a dollar's worth of value. Yeah. The, the, yeah. There, we, we have to have code. Yeah. yeah, exactly. We have to have codes that, um, how to put it, we, we do have to have these codes about what expresses respect for one another. Um, and, and there's really no way around that in, a, in cooperation. Like you need to do something you need to have signals, right? Like if you read, like the, just mass cooperation and even actually minor cooperation on the small scale requires signaling attitudes and signaling respect. Um, and so every society needs to pick some norms. And then the question about, it, it's just not the case that uh, even if you pick the suboptimal norms, that that immediately means you should change to more optimal norms because there's a cost to change. So yeah, you do in fact, you might in fact signal disrespect to other people, but um, maybe it's just, well, given the stakes here, you're just not, uh, you're not obligated to play along, but it is true that you've expressed disrespect. Now I don't want to overstate that either because I don't want to say something like, well, that means that if you're living in like the Castro district of San Francisco in 1968 and you're outwardly gay, but everyone's prejudiced against you, then, then actually you're expressing disrespect for everybody. I think sometimes we have to say, well, the norms are just garbage norms and, and if people, and that's all we can say about them, but there might be cases where, the weight of the norms is still relevant. Right. Okay. Okay. That's excellent. Um, oh, we're already at 30 minutes. Uh, here, let me, I, I, I did want to, uh, here, I'll, I'll get to that later, but maybe I'll, I'll jump to some student questions for you. Um, one is from uh, Camila Alcero. And this is, I think, a really interesting question. It's, it's asking you to further explain the idea of schmarkets. Uh, which is, which is a term that you guys introduce in the paper. And, and I think this is a good clarifying question because this is a, a very philosophery thing to do that might not be obvious what what to up to to you know non-nerds why you're introducing this concept of schmarkets um so can you explain the idea of, of schmarkets and what you guys are trying to do argumentatively by bringing that up 
Yeah. Uh, you know, in general, this is like a philosophical move people make. And you, as you're laughing, cause you've seen, you know, we didn't come up with this. We've seen right. this all around. Right. Uh, so sometimes what happens when you're debating somebody and you're like, oh, well, the market could be like this or democracy could be like that, or this person could be like that. They pound the table and insist, no, no, no. By definition, what, what it is to be a market or what it is to be a democracy or whatever it is to be the thing that you're debating has the following features. And then you kind of make fun of them by going, okay, well, then let's talk about schmarkets or sh- sh- I can't say sh- democracy or something. You put like the SDH in front of it. And then you describe something that's basically exactly the same, except for the like the one feature which they're saying is essential. And then they realize that it doesn't really make a difference. So if somebody says to me, you know what, if you have a market and and it doesn't have these features, which I think are deplorable, it's not actually a market. Then I'd be like, okay, I don't really care then. Let's just talk about situations where people buy and sell things. And if you don't want to call that, and, and it doesn't have those features. And if you don't want to call that a market, I'm just going to call it schmarket. I'm I'm not interested in like defining the word market. What I'm interested in is the question of like what can be bought and sold under what conditions. Right. Like in some uh, ways, what you guys are doing there is you're sort of calling people out by saying like, look, you're just playing games with words, right? You've just, you've stacked the decks by defining this term in this very, in this way that helps your position. So I'll, yeah. instead of arguing you, arguing with you about what this word means, I'll just sort of be like, okay, fine. Then call it, so I'll, I'll, then let's call it something else. We'll call it a schmarket. Yeah, I mean, uh, here's another example I think is more intuitive to students because they probably heard this. Like, imagine you have someone who's like, by definition, a marriage is between a man and a woman. That's just what it is to be a marriage. So that means that the state cannot have gay marriage. You can go, fine. What the state is now going to do, the state will no longer recognize any marriages, but it will instead have an institution called schmarriage, which allows any consenting adults to enter into a relationship that has the following features. And the person's going to be like, oh, damn it. Like, I don't know what, like, what do I have to say about that? Right. Yeah. Okay. It's not, it's not marriage. It's marriage. Okay. Yeah. That's a, that's an excellent example. Um, okay, great. Um, so, uh, many more had this interesting question, um, which was, and in some ways she was sort of asking you to comment on what Anderson's view, but maybe I'll, I'll t- turn it into a more general question. So she asked about, um, adoption. Mm-hmm. Uh, because obviously uh, Anderson's argument is about um, you know commercial surrogacy and about paying for children, and she was sort of wondering if that view ends up having any connotations for the morality or the ethics of adoption um, writ large, like maybe even not even when it doesn't involve the exchange of money. Do you think these these two things are related in any way, or do you think you can have views on one that don't imply a view on the other? No, I think that's exactly right. If I if I remember correctly, uh, chapter seventeen of the book, and it, I think it was called "Baby Buying." It was on adoption and surrogacy selling and so on. Um, and and so, like one of the worries that people have is imagine you allow people to buy and sell rights to adopt children. Um, so if you see like the movie Juno, uh, the character Juno gives up. Maybe I shouldn't give away the plot. Everyone's seen it by now. Like the character Juno gives away her the parental rights to another character. I think her name is Vanessa uh in in the movie and it's perfectly legitimate for her to do that but she does it for free she doesn't like ask for any kind of compensation so one question is like do we want people to sort of auction off their parental rights is that a good thing would that lead to like the misallocation of babies and in the paper in the book we argue like we're we're fine with that kind of auction but again we think you can only do it for money if you can do it for free so if um uh, if, if someone's like a pedophile, they shouldn't be allowed to adopt a baby for free. So they shouldn't be allowed to adopt it for any amount of money either. If you're just generally an unfit parent, um, maybe you shouldn't be allowed to adopt a baby for free. So you shouldn't be allowed to do it for money. 
but beyond that, there might be reasons for having that. It might be worthwhile to have things like markets or allow people to buy and sell these things. And some reasons might have to do with things like, um, you know, imagine like you're like a Christian kind of conservative who's anti-abortion and you might be horrified at the idea of adoption markets. Well, one, one possibility will though be that fewer people will have abortions and instead they'll carry the baby to term. And then you're basically compensating them for the cost to them of doing so. And then they get, so now they're kind of made better off by getting the money. And then the baby ends up, instead of being aborted, goes to like loving parents who might want it. Again, you're only allowed to take the baby if you're fit. You can't do it. If you can't do it for free, you can't have it for money either. Another worry that people have, um, a classic worry is about, well, what if this ends up reflecting racial biases and things like that? What it, cause it might turn out that say white babies go for more than black babies or like that kind of thing. Right. And, and there's actual reason to think that that's true. It's not just a hypothetical worry. It's, uh, so a number of economists like Posner and others, um, have already written a number of papers on this where they say, yes, that's likely to happen, but the effect is actually overall beneficial because right now what happens is that babies of like preferred ethnicities get snatched up and the babies of like less preferred ethnicities are less likely to be adopted and more likely to be neglected. When you put a price on things, you can demonstrate both in theory and in actual empirical practice insofar as we have um, examples that are kind of like this in the real world that more babies end up getting adopted. Um, and so you have fewer, you have less neglect, you have more care and so on. Because if you say to somebody, basically, you know, it sucks that people are ethnocentric. It sucks that they're, they have racial biases and so on. But the way it gets expressed when there isn't a monetary price is people will be like, well, I'll adopt a white baby or I won't adopt any baby at all. Um, because I'm, but if you make it a price discrimination thing and they're like, well, white baby costs $25,000 and the fight and the black baby costs $5,000, maybe I'm not willing to, I, you're now making them put a price on their prejudice and they have to ask whether they're really willing to pay for that. And they might not, and they might take the other baby instead. And so they argue that it actually, even though it's sort of morally disgusting that, um, you know, you'll see like maybe a babies of certain genders go for more babies with blue eyes go for more than babies with brown eyes. The net result is that more babies get adopted. They get cared for better. And so it's like a trade-off worth making as opposed to just the most desirable babies get adopted and the less desirable babies don't get adopted. Right, right, right. So the, the difference in price isn't it. That's not the, the creation of racism. That's the manifestation of racism that was going to be there anyway, or prejudice that was going to be there anyway. And yeah. in so far as you translate it into prices, it actually helps alleviate some of those some of those harms that come from. Um, something that David Dick brought up. It's a bit of a tangent, but it's, but it's still somewhat related. Just on the conversation about surrogacy. Um, so have you have you read uh, David's response to your? Yeah, I read it. I have to admit, I haven't read it recently. Um, I read it uh, quite a while ago. Right. Um, so, but so, but anyway, so um, one of the things that we were talking about is interesting because I, I, after, you know, I've been teaching this debate a while and I've always sort of sided more on your guys' side and think that Anderson was off. And, and David sort of put reframed it in a way that has changed, kind of changed the way I think about things. So I'm curious to hear what you think. So his point is that um, Anderson's argument isn't so much that it is wrong for a person to um, exchange money for surrogacy. Uh, in some ways, the, the issue is not with the individual transaction or the two transactors. It is with 
the institutionalization of an industry that enables it in some sense, <laughs> right? So, so, so in other words, like it, when we're talking about commercial surrogacy, her issue isn't with the person who's carrying the child or the person who ends up with the child at the end of the process. Her issue is with the broker who kind of necessarily has to see these things in commodity terms and in the system of law that might uphold it in that way. And, and the way David put it, was, which, which would sort of help me understand the, the force of the argument, was something along these lines, which is, um, if there's a conflict, which norms win out, right? So if, if I'm a surrogate and I decide after, you know, during the pregnancy that I want to keep the child, does that win out? My, my like very understandable and perhaps natural feelings of affection that have evolved during the course of, of the pregnancy, does that win out? Or does the contract that I happen to have signed four months ago or five months ago went out. And, and on, on David's account, Anderson's argument is saying the problem with commercial surrogacy is it privileges the contractual logic over the parental logic, right? So it's not the parent, it's not the problem of people exchanging money. It's that we create and institutionalize a set of norms that views these things in terms of commodities. Does that make yeah. sense? Yeah, it does. Um, yeah, and thanks for thanks for going over that. Yeah. Uh, I was worried you're gonna put me on the spot and be like, "What's your response to his claim?" And <laughs> I was th- I was thinking about like the the mediation. Like I was thinking right. of a different part of his paper. There's about like the mediation of something, and I like I was worried I would not get it right. But now now you make it easier for me. Um, so I think that might be right. But there's a couple of responses. One is uh, we we do say to her like, "Well, are you complaining not about the institutionalization in principle, or just about like, or just about?" the particular way it's institutionalized. Um, Are you, are you worried about like, okay, like maybe having a system in which these contracts like are enforceable in a particular way or using brokers is a bad thing. And and so you're, what you really just want is a different kind of institutionalization. Um, And, and part of me also is just like, well, we, we actually say in the book, um, not the paper that the students would have read, but in the book, that there can be cases where, I mean, we're, we're fundamentally interested in just the question of like, is it permissible for people to buy and sell this, which is different from asking like, would it be desirable for lots and lots of people to do it? So we, we actually argue that uh, even though it's permissible to buy and sell votes under certain circumstances, nevertheless, it makes sense to have a law forbidding it. Uh, like it should be so in the same way that like you see people like Anderson saying um, I think you know she might think prostitution is wrong but it should be legalized um, or like Raiden I think thinks that um, you you can see us saying like well I think that buying and selling votes is permissible under some circumstances but um, it should be criminalized and penalized we shouldn't allow it because if it's done on a mass if we allow it legally it'll be done in a, it'll be done in such a way on average that it's actually really destructive even though individual acts might be totally permissible. So like me calling Lauren Lemaski, this is the example I put in the book and being like, Lauren, you never vote, but if anyone should vote, it's you. You're such a good guy. You're an expert in PPE and all this stuff. Like you're going to vote for like the right person. If I say like, I'll give you a hundred dollars to vote or I'll donate a thousand dollars to the charity of your vote of your choice to vote. Will you do it? Um, he might say that his vote isn't worth that much and I shouldn't, but suppose he, he takes it. I don't think I've done anything wrong, but nevertheless, it might make sense for the government to forbid people from doing that kind of thing. So I do wonder if it's just about the... F- is it is it just the way that it's institutionalized that she's complaining about? Is it the the particular facts of the market that we can alter? You know, so um, my friends uh, Jason and Ben they hired they basically hired the their uh, barista at um, uh, Starbucks to to carry their babies for them. Uh, did 
did they do they didn't use a broker they didn't have a contract like this they just made a bunch of private agreements and a lot of the things that anderson is worried about are just simply missing so one one question would be like if we could just have anderson be in charge of creating the laws would that just make the problem go away or does she think there's just no way of having the laws be done that would make it okay but if she, at the end of the day, she's like, well, I think it'd be bad if this happens on an industrial scale, but I agree that everything Jason ben, and Ben did was totally fine. And I'm okay with surrogacy services that go like that. Then I'm like, okay, then it turns out we basically agree. Right. And this goes back to the clarification you made earlier on that, you know, the, the simple form of your thesis isn't exactly right. It's not that if you can do it for free, you can do it for money. It's if you could do it for free, there's a way that you can do it for money. And, and here, yeah, in a realistic way too. Right. That's important. We right. say like, it doesn't, it can't be, oh, it turns out you can buy and sell this thing, but only on like the fourth full moon of the year while singing Robert Palmer lyrics and wearing a toga. <laughs> it's like, no, there's, there's like plausible normal ways of doing it. Yeah. Right. And, but, and so, so your response to if, so I think the take there is saying like, oh, if that's Anderson's view, then that's compatible with what we're saying. Cause it would be commercial surrogacy would be fine, but the contract would have to be stipulated in such a way so as to enable some of these concerns, right? So, so yeah. that like, it's not like you're snatching babies from like, you know, new, newborn babies from their mother's arms and then waving a contract in their face. The market right. has it, to accommodate these concerns, but you could still have yeah. a market. And, and maybe there should be no formalization of it. Maybe governments should just, like they could have a couple laws forbidding certain things, but otherwise they don't ever enforce any contracts. Right. They're just like, sorry, we, we're just going to stick with the rule that like, if it comes out of, if it comes out of you, it's yours. And right. that's how the government thinks. But in reality, like baby surrogacy services happen and they just don't enforce it. That maybe that's the way to go. So that's one way of institutionalizing the market, which is by not recognizing it, even though it happens. Interesting. Okay. Okay. That's great. Um, and then, okay. So one last question, we'll get you out of here on this. Um, and this is, uh, so yeah, it, it, this is related, but it's it's somewhat tangential. So uh, Lindsay Valero asks, "What's your position on price gouging or profiting off of things like hand sanitizer or face masks? So commodifying things during the pandemic." And I guess I'll add this question to it, which is, "Does your does your answer to this how how related is it to what you and Peter write in this article, or is it informed by different opinions or different different uh, different principles?" Yeah, that's that's a good example because I do have a view on it, but in a sense, my view on it doesn't matter for this book. Um, so let me give you like an analogy example. We say some people say we shouldn't have the buying and selling of kidneys because what will happen is really desperately poor people who have only horrible options will sell their kidney for too low of a price. And so one response to that is to say, I mean, I'm bringing this up because the worry about this is very similar to the worry about price gouging, where you're worried that in the case of an emergency or a bad situation that some people exploit others. They'll take pernicious advantage of their disadvantage. Uh, and so take the kidney market again, like poor people will sell their kidneys um, for too low of a price. And then we say, was well, your worry that the price is too low because then you'd be okay with it as long as they get enough money. Like I shouldn't buy this person's kidney for five grand, but if I give him 15 grand, that's, that's okay with you. And the person says, okay, well, that's not just that. I'm, I'm worried that the only reason they're selling it is because they're so desperate and that doesn't count as genuinely consensual. Then I might say, okay, so you're not against kidney selling, period. You're against really desperately poor people selling their kidneys in a way where it might not truly be consensual. So you'd be okay with like me, Jay Brennan, selling my kidney because I'm not desperate to like get extra money, though I wouldn't mind some. But uh, you know, if you, if you feel like give me 50 grand or something, I'll definitely take it. But um, 
you know, it, you wouldn't be you wouldn't be upset with that. So we could have a rule that's like, I mean, it doesn't have to be a law, just a moral rule that as long as you're making thirty thousand dollars a year and you're not desperate, it's okay to sell your kidney, and then you'd have that kind of kidney market. So all we really need for the thesis is something like that. Oh, your worry is a contingent feature about a particular market. You're not against selling hand sanitizer, and most you're against selling hand sanitizer. Uh, under certain conditions where you think it's being sold unfairly. You're concerned about the business ethics of it, not with the thing itself, the way it's being sold, not the fact that it's being sold. But that said, with the with the kidney example, um, um, you're still there, right? My screen went asleep. I want to make sure I didn't. Oh, like... yeah, yeah. No, I'm here. Okay, good. Good. I want to make sure it didn't like, cut us off. Uh, with, the thing with the kidney example, though, is I also go, well, look, if you have a person where they're so desperate that the very best thing that they can do is sell their kidney for a very small amount of money. I don't know a lot about that person, but I know that probably their second best option is something even worse than selling your kidney for a very low amount of money. You know, like if, if all I know about you, Gabe, uh, Abe right now is that like you're, you think the best thing you can do at this very moment is sell both of your kidneys for 10, for $10. I'd be like, Holy cow, you're in a really awful situation because that's your best choice. And if I simply take away your best choice, then I'm I'm really hurting you quite a bit. So my basic view is like you never help anybody by eliminating their best choice. Um, you only help them by providing them with an even better choice. I think that applies to price gouging too. Uh, so there's a lot to be said for like what happens during a situation. Like, you know, when, when there's an emergency, like the hurricane hits and it shuts down the generators and it destroys the roads, certain things become genuinely scarce. Uh in, in supply and demand economics terms, there's a supply shock because you can't get replacements for things. And there's a demand shock because people suddenly want more of certain things and want less of something else. So when you have the positive demand shock and the negative supply shock, the actual market price goes up. I mean, the, the, where the supply and demand curves intersect has now gone up. And if you don't allow the market to rise to that price, you're going to get some perverse things. You'll get hoarding. You'll get people buying things to resell them. So even if you don't resell it, they're going to sell it. You'll get possible like black markets. And if you try to find, so what's the issue? You might you might try to find another solution. Like, can we ration things out and just say everyone can have one, but they everyone can have only one of this item. Um, uh, so, so I often give people like in the business ethics classes I used to teach like that as a problem. Like imagine that a store has like a limited supply of rice, like, and you want to like maximize human welfare, what do you do? Do you have pe do you interview people as they come into the store and ask them, um, like, who's the most desperate for the rice and you only give it to the people that have the biggest sob story? Can you trust them? Can you trust your employees to like, not just give it to like the people that they find most sympathetic or the ones they're attracted to or to act in an unjust way themselves to like hold them, hold it and like, you know, use it to benefit their own interests. Uh, can you ration it appropriately? If you do ration it, will people just resell it at a higher price anyway? Um, if you just make it the price the same, will it just mean there's like a first come first serve thing like we saw with the toilet paper and people just hoard it and even though they don't need it. So I think people's concerns about price gouging are all accurate. It sucks that suddenly something is scarce and it's so expensive that a lot of people can't afford it. What's not obvious to me is whether the alternatives are better. Uh, so I don't, I don't want to say therefore like they're like, we should just always let the price rise, but I do want to say it's pretty complicated. Uh, but again, it doesn't matter. It, in a sense, it doesn't matter what my position is on that because, um, you know, like with the kidney case, it's like if you think exploitation is bad, that just means that you don't want to sell kidneys in an exploitative way. It doesn't mean that you don't want that kidney selling is always wrong. Right, right. Yeah, no, I, I um, actually earlier this 
maybe a month into the pandemic, I had a, a podcast with with Peter Jaworski, and we talked about this and our our different competing views on price gouging. And I think I think what we reached was like, you know, so take toilet paper. So you know, your concern is like if you don't raise the price, the toilet paper is basically going to go in a day, right? People will hoard the toilet paper because it's underpriced, and everybody's reasonably scared about there being a lack of toilet paper, so people will overbuy, right? Yeah. Um, and so, you know, the way we sort of took it, it was that that sort of, you know, let the market work it, work its way out is fundamentally concerned with keeping toilet paper on the shelves. But then somebody coming from my political orientation is going to say, okay, but if the toilet paper's on the shelf, but not everybody can afford the toilet paper, what good is it doing? And it, or yeah. not what good is it doing, but that seems like its own problem. So it seems like, and this, this is just to agree with you that it's complicated. It seems yeah. like we want both to keep scarce goods available to the best degree we can, but we also don't think that people shouldn't have access to things just because they happen to have less money, like certain things, like certain funds. Yeah, right. Like good. And, and the problem is the tools we would use to alleviate one of those problems is going to exacerbate the other often. Yeah, so a good example of that, I think, would be uh, even with the kidney market itself. Like we, we think of this objection and we go – um, well, what happens if like the price right now, like the price of kidney, if the price of kidneys is zero dollars, but if, uh, so suppose there is a market, a robust market in kidneys and the price is $50,000. What about the poor people who don't have access to it? Cause it's just too expensive for them. And so in the book, we have like two responses. One is we say empirically, it turns out they don't get the kidneys anyway. Um, in fact, the lottery is rigged in various ways and poor people don't get the kidneys and rich people do why that is. We're not really sure. It's not simply a health issue where on average, like you know, it is actually the case, like of the people who need kidneys, the richer people are actually more eligible than the poor people, because it's usually like the rich people need a kidney because they had like a weird disease that killed their kidneys. And the poor people uh, are often, it's like they didn't have the weird disease, but they had like, they drank too much or something. And then by the way that the, the lottery is weighted towards like your past behavior. So that's part of it, but it's not only that it's just somehow like poor people don't get the kidneys. I, I, there must be some sort of corruption going on. Uh, so one thing is to say maybe it wouldn't matter because it would be a Pareto improvement anyway because the, the current system sucks so badly. But imagine you could fix that system. We would go, well, look, uh, when people can't afford bread, we don't say we shouldn't have markets and bread. We have food stamps. So let's have kidney stamps. Um, like if, you, if you're below a certain income threshold, you get um, a subsidy. And if you're above it, you don't. And as long as you keep subsidies pretty narrow and not that many people get them, you don't cause a massive distortion in the market where – like what happens, say, with like college education, where government subsidizing college just makes college more expensive. If you do it like on a small scale, you really just help people. Now, in the immediate aftermath of a crisis where like, you know, the price of milk is now $10 a gallon, maybe it's not institutionally possible to subsidize the people who really need it and make everyone else pay the price. But that's that's kind of what you want. That's like That's like the standard economist answer, right? Like ideally what you do here is force everyone to pay for the price except for the genuinely desperate people and they get the subsidy and that's it. Yeah, I, I always I often had this idea that like and it, it's completely unworkable, right? Or maybe not completely unworkable, but pretty, pretty unworkable just technologically speaking and logistically. But that like, you know, in the moment of a hurricane, what happens is we transition to like disaster dollars, <laughs> which are distributed yeah. a bit more equally. They're just on your phone. They're like you get an everybody immediately gets an account, and that's actually what everybody has to buy and sell, right? Like regular dollars yeah. become the sort of black market. But now 
you can raise the price of milk and, and water because everybody, even the poorest people, have everybody has the same, roughly the same amount of disaster dollars. Yeah, that's super clever. And what do you think, though, about people reselling the disaster dollars the way that like they right. would sell ration tickets in a black market? Do you are you OK with that? Like, right. So it's that's, efficient, that's exactly or? what would happen. Right. Is that you yeah, get a yeah. black market with real dollars? Um, and, and so there is a degree to which. I think I actually might be okay with it, and I, I'm like thinking this out as you as you ask. I think my my thing would be, um, like, look, there's going to be a windfall profit to somebody, right? Yeah, like, you know. So like, I I own the bodega down the street. I have a bunch of milk. There's this huge disaster now. Milk the per, the value of milk goes up by a ton. I didn't do anything. I just happened to have all of this milk. Um, so I could collect this windfall profit, but it's pretty morally arbitrary that I'm getting it. Whereas if we did this thing with the disaster dollars and we had, and, and people started selling that on the black market, like what's going to end up happening is actually those rent or the, that, that windfall is actually going to go to the poorer people because they're the people who are likely going to be selling the, you know, selling their disaster money on the black market. So I think there actually might be a redistributive good in that, but I'm, I'm, just, I'm, I'm sure I'm missing something there, but that, yeah. would, that would be my first, my first reaction to that. Yeah, it's a cool idea. Yeah, 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 I like it. But that's that's sort of that. I feel like that's the type of response that's needed. Um, yeah, yeah. Whether we can achieve it is another thing. Jason, uh, we've already gone on for a long time, so um, thank you, thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. Yeah, well, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Awesome. All right, have a good one. Yeah.